Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. It's been a, obviously a, a troubling week in many ways, a difficult week in our country and the things we are seeing on our TVs and on, our, on the internet. All kinds of emotions, all kinds of questions uh, flow through and um, it's, it's tempting to press pause on Philippians and perhaps look at another text, maybe a psalm of lament or even imprecatory psalms come to mind at times as well. But when we consider what we're looking at in Philippians chapter 3, I can't think of many things that are more comforting and of eternal hope and comfort than the truth we're looking at in Philippians chapter 3. And so uh, we're just going to stay right here and continue looking at this chapter together. So we're going to read beginning in verse 1 through to verse 11. And then we're going to focus on verses 4 to 9 today in the sermon. But let's read beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Last time we looked at verses 1 to 3, and we saw there, especially in verse 2, that Paul warns about the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilation, the mutilators of the flesh. That is, he is warning the church in Philippi about these, this group called the Judaizers. This was those men, if you recall, who insisted... That in order to be saved, if you wanted to be justified and stay justified, you have to keep the law. So that would begin with being circumcised and brought into, really they're saying you need to become a Jew. You need to, be, you need to keep the old covenant in order to be saved. They were smuggling works back into the gospel as part of the grounds by which one is justified. One of the basis of which a man is saved, justified. They viewed themselves as the true people of God. They felt they were the ones who stood in line going all the way back to Abraham who first received circumcision. But Paul, of course, is showing here that actually those Judaizers are the ones on the outside. Remember, Jews viewed Gentiles as dogs. And so that's why he's calling them dogs. He's saying actually they're the ones who are on the outside of God's covenant people. They figured they were Doers of the law, but in fact they were evildoers, Paul says. 
and their circumcision amounted to nothing more than mutilation. These are harsh words, but if you recall, Paul is guarding the very core of the Christian faith, the grace of God and the gospel. In reality, as we saw, true believers are those who have been born again, have received a new heart, have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, and thereby worship God by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ alone, and put no confidence in the flesh. And as we come to verses 4 to 9, Paul is going to expand upon these things, particularly those last two things, glorying in Christ alone and putting no confidence in the flesh. And so we're talking again about justification. That is how one has a right standing before God, a right standing with God. This is so important because when we talk about justification, we're talking about how it is you will stand before God on judgment day. Will you survive that day or you will, will you melt before his divine justice and wrath towards sinners? That's, that's what Paul is dealing with here, and that's why he's intense about it. Whether one will stand or fall before God in judgment comes down to whether or not one is justified. And so this ought to have our attention. And even as we think about the world around us, this is really what they need to understand. This is our message to, to, to men and women on all sides of every issue. Now, this matter of justification is tied to righteousness. In fact, quite literally, in in Greek and in Hebrew, those two words, justification and righteousness, share the same root. If we are to stand before God, what we need is to have our sins washed clean, wiped away, and we need in its place righteousness. Now, we know that a lot of people have no interest in this conversation. They have no interest in atonement for their sin, no care about any forgiveness of sins or anything of that sort. But if anyone has any sense that they need to get to heaven or however they might say it, there's really only two ways of trying to get there, two ways of trying to attain righteousness to stand before God. One of them is to try to obtain our own righteousness through our own works. There's various ways people will try to do this, but that's what most people try to do. And the only other way is to rely upon the righteousness that is outside of ourselves, a righteousness that is from God and is received by faith. Of course, we've already seen Paul say that the the real circumcision, the real people of God, the true church are those who glory in Christ alone and put no confidence in the flesh. So we, we know the answer here. We know which path is the right one. The only way to obtain a righteousness by which we would be justified before God. And so he, he's going to expand upon this here. So there's just two points to the outline uh, to our sermon today. And the first one is this. When it comes to justification... Forsake your own efforts to obtain your own righteousness. Forsake your own efforts to obtain your own righteousness. This is, again, what we see Paul telling us to do here. This is what we see he himself did. So look at verse 3 again. 
He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So again, these, these Judaizers, these false teachers, they are putting confidence in their flesh, really quite literally in their circumcision and their other law-keeping as necessary grounds of their salvation. They, they acknowledge their need for Jesus, certainly some measure of grace and help, but part of their reason that they will stand before God is their own works. Circumcision, works of the law. And Paul acknowledges here, if that's the way it works, if that's how this operates, then he also would have just as much reason to boast as any of those Judaizers. In fact, it's clear that this is really how Paul at one time in his life did view this matter of justification. Uh, we read earlier from Acts 22, where Paul is giving a defense and in there, he gives his testimony of sorts. And typically, when we think about a testimony, we think of it in biographical terms. I was born at this time, raised in this way. Here's who my family was, and, and, and you know, God saved me at this point, and etc. And here in Philippians 3, as one commentator points out, it's like he gives us his, uh, his testimony from a theological perspective, as opposed to biographical, a theological perspective of his, of his conversion. And he begins with what he used to consider as his hope. There's, uh, so we'll, we'll look at verse uh, 4, middle of verse 4. Let's continue reading. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So there's four things mentioned in there, and they all relate to Paul's lineage. If you recall the Pharisees in Jesus' day, they liked to appeal to their ancestry for their hope. Oh, we're children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. What are you talking about? This is how they respond to Jesus. They're just hoping in the fact that they are obviously descendants of Abraham. Promises were made to Abraham and his descendants and the people of Israel. We're those people. What's the big deal? relying upon their lineage. Paul likewise had such a confidence. He was circumcised, he says, on the eighth day. He's an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. It's quite possible that Saul, the apostle, was named after King Saul, probably the most well-known Saul who was from the tribe of Benjamin in the Old Testament. Seems a bit odd given the way Saul ended, but possibly that's who he's named after. And he says here he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now that could be saying that he was at the top of the class of all the other Hebrews. But it's more likely that this is saying he was a Hebrew from Hebrews. That is, he was born to Hebrew parents. That he was not, uh, not even just a Jew, in, uh, like a diaspora Jew who spoke Greek or some other language. But he knew Hebrew. We saw in Acts 22 he addressed the people in Hebrew. Uh, he, he was born in Cilicia, yes, but he was brought up in Jerusalem, he says. Studied under Gamaliel, this in, uh, important and famous rabbi. He was, he was a true Hebrew, the purest of the pure. And then he gets into his practice, his accomplishments, his law keeping. As to the law, he says, that's middle of verse 5, a Pharisee. 
So Paul was, you didn't have to become part of the Pharisees. You volunteered. You chose to become a Pharisee. This is the most, the strictest of all the sects within uh, Judaism. As to the law, a Pharisee, he says. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He saw himself as a zealous guardian of the truth. Possibly a Phineas-like figure, if you remember the character Phineas from Numbers chapter 25. There when the people of Israel were sinning uh, with false gods and the women of Moabite, of Moab. And God put a plague out on them and Phineas ran a couple through with a spear and, and actually appeased the wrath of God, it says there. This was the kind of zeal that Paul had for what he believed was what God wanted. He persecuted the church. He breathed out murderous threats against the Lord's people. He continues, says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. As far as anyone could tell, if you were just to look at Paul, there was really no blemish upon the man. He was scrupulous. His attention to detail, his attention to the laws, in his efforts to keep it. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul's not saying here that he truly was without any sin. But externally speaking, he had the appearance of having kept the law. So elsewhere, he says that when he really considered the law, it revealed his sinfulness to him. He would not have known what coveting was if it weren't for the fact that the law said, do not covet, and it awakened sin in him and revealed sin to him. He's talking externally here. He was scrupulous about the law and the traditions that had been passed down to him, even external to the scriptures themselves. In Galatians 1.14, he says, that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. This, this was a man who was rising fast within the ranks. Looked up to by all. And all of these things that he lists here were for Paul in his mind prior to conversion. All to his advantage. They all revealed his earnestness, his seriousness, his devotion to the Lord. Surely he was approved by God because of all of these things that he has just listed here. If he were to stand before God, he would marshal all of this as evidence to say, of course I belong with you. In this chapter, Paul speaks as if there are two columns on a ledger. There's a gain column and a loss column. And in this column marked gain, he once had all of these things, all of these works, including the way he had been raised, his lineage, all of it. And this, of course, is something that so many people do and continue to do. We marshal all of our good deeds as the reason that we are good to go with God. The basis upon which we will stand. Surely I will pass the test, if there is one, on the last day because of all of these things that I have done. We put all of this stuff on the gain side. Our, and there might even be some good things in there. Our church attendance. The fact that we've paid our taxes. Maybe even on time. We've tried to do decent things to our neighbor. We even cut their side of the front lawn. We've sacrificed for other people at time. We've provided for our families. We've stayed faithful to our spouse. Married to one person, perhaps. There's even many times when we've resisted doing evil. Sure, we've given in at times, but we've done a lot of good things, especially if we consider other people. 
And then there's all the honorable things that we have said and posted to our social media accounts. All of these things to our credit. Perhaps we will add other things. I wear my mask like I'm told. Or I don't wear my mask. I stayed home as the government told me to. I'm a good person. Or I didn't stay home. I protested it. I'm a good person. Whatever it might be. We say, this is to my credit. This is in my gain column before God. All of this will be marshaled. Behold my righteousness. This is how Paul was before God. This is all proof that he deserved to be justified. This is his righteousness. But, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. Paul takes all of that that was in his gain column at one time and he pushes it all over to the other side of the ledger to loss, disadvantage, of no value. In fact, working against him. And he does this for the sake of Christ. He continues, verse 8 Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. All of Paul's works, all of his pedigree, all of his best efforts, the greatest things he has accomplished, he counts as loss because there is something greater and far more precious, namely the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, he says. In fact, he suffered the loss of all things and counts them as rubbish, garbage. The King James says dung, which is a fair translation, excrement. This is strong language Paul's using. We don't want to think of our good deeds as such, do we? This is the idea of self-denial. And notice here, Paul is showing that these two ways of trying to obtain righteousness are mutually exclusive. His is a complete rejection of his own efforts in order to secure his justification. Everything goes in the loss column in terms of his own efforts. In order that he might gain Christ. It's one or the other. It's not Christ's works and my works combining to form the basis of my salvation. He rejects all of himself for Christ, to be found in Christ. If you or anyone would be justified before God, you must see the bankruptcy of even your best efforts. It is not just your sins but also your your attempts to be good. Think of Isaiah when he talks about our works, our best efforts, our works being like filthy rags. Another very strong word for them. God's law demands utter and absolute perfection. 
Even this Hebrew of Hebrews was unable to establish his own righteousness before God. This reminds me of Luke 18, where our Lord told a parable in verse 9, beginning in verse 9. He says, it says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is those who are trusting in, they've got all these works that's on their gain side of the ledger, trusting in themselves. And the result, they're treating others with contempt. Isn't that the way it goes? All those people who don't measure up to me, not trying as hard, treating them with contempt. Continues, two men, this is the parable Jesus told, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Gain. This is his gain. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a call to put no confidence in your own flesh, in your own works. As Paul says in Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. And so count your own self-efforts at goodness even as loss. Secondly, when it comes to justification, embrace the righteousness that is from God and received by faith. Embrace the, the righteousness that is from God and received by faith. There's a, a word that's used here often. It used to be at least by theologians, but an, an alien righteousness is what they would say. Where it's, of course, not green, little green men, but a righteousness that belongs to another. That's what this is. It's a righteousness that is foreign to you. Our efforts go into the lost column and we need another righteousness. It's a righteousness outside of ourselves, alien to us. And this is what Paul explains here, particularly in verse 9. But I want to back up to verse 7 and, and read this again, considering now the gain statements. If all of his righteousness in the lost column, what has replaced it on the gain side? Verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Again, it's two options, confidence in the flesh or glorying in Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So here, the focus of Paul's contrast is on the immeasurable difference in value between the two. My own efforts at attaining righteousness versus the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I throw it all off in order to have Christ instead. The gain column for Paul is now solely Christ. This is where his hope lies. Of course, prior to the Damascus road, Christ was in the loss column for him. That was going to be a negative to him, he would figure we know that because he was a persecutor of the church. He wanted to stamp it out. You remember when 
when Paul was converted, when, when, when the risen Lord did appear to him on the Damascus road, his words to him were, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So as Paul is taking it out on the church, Christ so identifies with his people that he says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Remarkably, there was a complete reversal as Saul was granted a new heart. And now as he writes Philippians, he's saying all of those previous efforts are a loss. Christ alone now is his boast and his gain. In verses 8 and 9, we have two purposes given for why he considers all of his efforts rubbish. The first is in order that I may gain Christ, he said, which again reveals it's one or the other. The second purpose is the beginning of verse 9. So in order that I may gain Christ, first purpose, and be found in him. Be found in him. The language of being in Christ is when we hear that language in him, in Christ, it's typically getting at this doctrine of union with Christ. So when a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are united to him by faith. He is the vine, we are the branches. Think of that in John chapter 15. And being united with Christ by faith, we then receive the blessings of Christ. Through our union with him, we receive all the blessings that Christ has earned for his people. And the specific blessing that Paul elaborates on here is the matter of righteousness. He's found in him, and then he explains this further, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, So again, this is another way of saying confidence in the flesh. All of those efforts, all of those former gains were his effort at establishing a righteousness by the law. But he'd rather be in Christ now, not having that kind of righteousness, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The only alternative to your own self-righteousness is righteousness that comes from God by faith. It is a righteousness that is alien to you. It is a gracious gift from God that is credited to your account upon faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is imputed to you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 speaks of this. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus took upon himself our sin. He made him to be sin. The sins of his people were imputed to him, and he died for those sins on the cross and rose from the dead, and in turn his people then have his righteousness that he has earned and secured imputed to our account. It's this great exchange. His robes for mine. We give up our filthy, dirty robes, our sinfulness. He takes them, pays the penalty for them, and we receive his righteous robes, his pure robes. Romans three twenty to 26 elaborates on this further. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. 
No confidence in the flesh. Nobody's going to be justified that way. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Again, that word propitiation means that God has put his son Jesus forth to satisfy God's wrath for sinners in his death. Again, sin and its penalty laid upon Christ. Well, his righteousness obtained, granted to those sinners. It is a free gift of God's grace. It is received not by works of law, but by faith, by believing it, by entrusting yourself to Christ, by resting in Christ. Entrusting yourself to the work of the Son of God, who lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and rose again from the dead to secure a completed salvation for all in him. Remember his words, it is finished. It is completed. Hebrews talks much about this once for all. This is the good news. And this is what Paul rejoiced in. This is now the entirety of his gain column. It is Christ crucified. To possess Christ is to possess all, and everything else is loss. If you would withstand the judgment of God, your need is for perfect righteousness. And thus to be justified, to be declared righteous, the only way is by receiving the provision of righteousness secured by Christ, given to you by God in his grace, by faith. So again, do not put any hope in your own efforts, in your own works. This is where Israel failed greatly. They sought to be righteous before God by works of law. Instead of like Abraham, who was justified by faith. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, you remember. So Paul was like many others of the Jews. And in speaking of his fellow Jews, in Romans 10.2, Paul says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Again, he's talking about this matter of justification. They did not want justification by God's grace through faith. They didn't want the righteousness of God received in that way. They were seeking to establish their own, such that when Christ came, they rejected him and crucified him. This is a teaching of Scripture that really rubs up against our natural pride, our desire to think highly of ourselves, to think well of ourselves. But I've done good things. And we want that to count in this matter of our justification. 
But when it comes to justification, obedience to the law does not profit. Rather, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness' sake. Justification is a legal act. It is a verdict that is rendered by God. In his courtroom, if you will, he declares the sinner justified. He declares the sinner righteous. This doesn't mean that you are then actually in your every deed, in all of your conduct made perfect. But in terms of your legal status with God, you are righteous. Because of Christ's righteousness credited to you. 1 Corinthians 1.30, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the whole idea that salvation is of God, and it is of his grace. If we say it's a little of grace, and then me and I contribute to this, my justification, the grounds here of my salvation, then at the end of the day, we do have cause for boast. But this is shut out of the biblical gospel and of Paul's teaching. And so let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And the wonderful reality of justification by grace through faith The wonderful reality of having a righteousness outside of yourselves that's credited to your account, that's imputed to you. The wonderful, joyful, joy-inducing truth here is that while all of life is up and down and so much ebbs and flows and we're in difficult times and sometimes good days and bad days and things around us get crazy. My own sin, I'm struggling with it. But justification remains steady. It remains the same. One is justified by grace through faith on account of an imputed righteousness the moment they first believe in the Lord Jesus Christ And it's the same way if they die 70 years later. And if they grow in grace and do all kinds of great works for the Lord during that time, it is wonderful. It is part of sanctification. The Lord is doing great work in them. And yet that is not the grounds of their justification. As we will see next week, Paul's going to go on in verse 10 and through to verse 16 to talk about the Christian life, about good works. He's going to say that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. He's talking about knowing the power of the resurrection life, to walk in newness of life for the Lord Jesus, to become like him in his death, to, to serve one another. If you back to chapter 2, when it talks about Christ being obedient to the Father to the point of death as this example of humility and service to one another. Paul desires to become more like that. This is the fruit, the evidence of a true and living faith. But none of that contributes to one's justification. None of that becomes the grounds of our salvation. The only people who will get through, if you will, who will pass through on judgment day will be those who are in Christ 
who are in the cleft of the rock that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who have received his righteousness credited to them. And that's the sole reason why we will be justified. And it is good, it is right then, to make that your hope. It's the only way. And to boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. When it comes to justification, there's only two kinds of righteousness. One that is of the flesh, law-keeping, our own works, and it will only end in misery. If it doesn't end in misery in this life, through despair, because I can't do it, I can't measure up, depression, on account of failure, then certainly it will end in misery in the final judgment. When it is clear you've drastically underestimated God's holiness and the extent of your own sinfulness. And the scriptures call you to forsake this. And the other kind of righteousness is the righteousness of God that is outside of you, it's outside of me. It is a gracious gift received by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is good news. Salvation is truly of God. And this is, a, this is the need of the hour. This is the need all the time. And even as we think about a world just seemingly coming apart at the seams around us, in our own society at least, at the end of the day, we see sinners... We see man being violent to man. We see fighting and arguing on both sides. Even amongst the protesters, there's profanities and cursing of God's name alongside of prayer. We live in a sinful and fallen world. And while it's good to seek to do what is right, to try to help, to try to promote what is just, and all those good things, There's much we won't figure out, but we do have eternal hope here. We have a message of reconciliation with God. There is a righteousness that every sinner can have upon faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the need for both tyrants and protesters alike. But of course, before we start going solving everyone else's problems, let us first take care of our own soul. If you would be justified, if you would be declared righteous before God, place no confidence in yourself in this matter. No confidence in your own works. Rather, reject those and embrace by faith the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished the crucified and risen Savior, and be justified by God's grace through faith. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, forgive us where we have 
waited too long to open it and to seek you in it and to find comfort in it and from it. Father, you've given us the words of eternal life. God, I pray that we would cling so closely to this. Father, I pray that we would be joyful in this as well. Lord, that even as we face very real difficulties, to know that we are eternally yours on account of what you have done for us in and through Christ. God, I pray that we would, you would just continue to teach your people to hold loosely to the things of the earth. Father, we know that you are great and you are above all things. You are sovereign. You are the creator of everyone and everything. We rejoice in the salvation that our King Jesus has brought to us. Father, I pray that you would give us opportunity to proclaim this to others, to share this good news with others. I pray that many more would hear and believe and place their full hope and confidence in Christ alone. Father, this is good, and we do rejoice in this. What a precious gift. Father, teach us to, to serve one another, to lay down our lives daily, to serve you and to serve others. Father, we, we confess that we fall so short of your glory. We lack wisdom in so many things. And we, we are praying to you, we are coming to your throne of grace to find mercy and help. Father, I pray that you would bless all of your people today, those who are here now in this building and gathered together in other locations and those who cannot make it. Father, supply every need that we have. Bless us, encourage us, strengthen us, renew us. We pray all of these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen.